to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. At the end of August one summer, a man named Jack signed an unusual contract. The contract would make him wealthy and famous. It would mean that people would write about him, they'd watch him on TV, they'd probably know his name for generations. But this was also a contract that asked Jack to do something particularly difficult for newly minted celebrities, or actually for anyone, ignore his ego. Ego is this kind of arrogance, this sort of delusion, that's this voice that's whispering in our ear how great we are, and it's, it's incredibly problematic there. Ryan Holiday is the author of the book Ego is the Enemy, which tells the story of Jack and the day that changed his life. Ego is is particularly insidious when we start to fail or, or when, when we're under attack or when we experience some disadvantage, because now ego is whispering that because you're not being recognized, because you're not, you don't have a lot of money, somehow you're less than other people. So ego is this sort of profound insecurity, this obsession with identity and status and, and ultimately with sort of dominance over other people. The thing was, Jack was about to come under attack. He couldn't be insecure. He had to go calmly about his work, even though he was going to be put down and yelled at and worse. And the man who offered him the contract that August day had a sense of what lay ahead. What he's saying he's looking for is someone who has a level of self-control and a sense of sort of purpose and dignity that's going to allow them to endure what is inevitably going to be thrown at him. The partnership between these two men turned out to be long-lasting, and it changed history as Jack Robinson, who was better known by his nickname, Jackie, explained to talk show host Dick Cavett years later. Well, I often wonder how you got what temper you have to have under control at times. So weren't things yelled at you? And Oh, there were a number of things, but uh, I worked for a great guy. I don't think anybody um, could have done the job had it not been for Mr. Ricky. He was constantly advising and guiding, and I had so much confidence in him, I would have jumped off the bridge if he told me to do it. That's, uh, that's how much I believed in him. And he was uh, a man that was sincere and dedicated and willing to lend that helping hand that's so needed today in terms of the problems that we face in everyday life. Branch Not enough Ricky. people are willing to do as Mr. Ricky did. Branch Ricky, who owned what was then the Brooklyn Dodgers, signed Jackie Robinson to a contract in August of 1945 on the condition that Robinson not fight back, that he keep his eye on the game, that he subsume his ego to something bigger. And, you know, what's so interesting about Jackie Robinson, and I think it's important that we study these sort of civil rights leaders in, in this way, is that they were not sort of made out of stone. They, they were not superhuman. They were just like us. And when you look at Jackie Robinson's early life, he was getting fights. You know, he, he, would, he was constantly getting in trouble. He sort of gets bounced out of the, the U.S. military for fighting against segregation. But in doing it, even though he was in the right, he did it in such a sort of disruptive, emotional way that, that he sort of gave gave his enemies the ability to do this. But Ricky didn't want to give those enemies any oxygen. About 40 years before, when he had worked as a college coach, he had seen a black athlete treated terribly, unable to get a hotel room with the rest of the team. Ricky did finally get the room for the athlete, but that incident stayed with him. He's decided he's going to integrate baseball, and there's a, a handful of players that he's looking at. So he says, you know, I'm looking for a player who will not fight back. But, says Ryan Holiday, 
that was a hard ask because we all have egos. And I think where ego is a is a problem is, you know, ego is constantly trying to defend itself. Who are you to say that to me? I'll show you. I think Jackie Robinson is hit by something like 50 pitches in his Major League Baseball career in an extremely high number. He never charges the mound. He never hits another player. He never responds to the slights that are thrown at him. Again, this is a distinction between confidence and ego. And an egotistical person could not do such a thing. Robinson started playing for the Dodgers in the spring of 1947 after spending time on one of their farm teams. And when he remembered, years later on a game show, what he had done, his ego still seemed to be curiously absent. You know, we all, Jackie, owe you a deep debt of gratitude for what you started when you joined the major leagues because you've made baseball a much better and interesting and exciting game. And it began with you. May I, may I say in all sincerity, if, I don't know whether we have time, but I, I appreciate that, but I must in all sincerity say, had it not been for Mr. Branch Rickey, this thing couldn't have come about. He had a much more difficult role than I had, and I like to give him credit for the role that he played in helping us and guiding us through our career. Well, you both have done a great job, and it, it started you. something that was simply wonderful and something we'll always appreciate. Thank, Thank you. you. Jackie Robinson. Holiday says Robinson illustrates something about success that's too often forgotten. Ego gets in our way, and figuring out how to achieve great things requires both being aware of it and suppressing it. I think the most trying moment in, in Jackie Robinson's career, I think they're playing the Philadelphia Phillies, and the, the, the GM of the Phillies is shouting all these horrible racial epithets at Jackie Robinson. Like, so horrible that even people at the time who are generally pretty racist found it to be abhorrent. And so ultimately, this manager is sort of on the chopping block to be fired. There's this big backlash about it. And Jackie Robinson agrees to pose for a photograph with this man to show that no grudges were being held, that he was willing to forgive him, and ultimately saves this man's job. But Jackie Robinson talking about this, he says, look, I never wanted to punch another human being in the face more than I wanted to punch this guy in the face. And the guy deserved it. And I think uh, Jackie Robinson earlier in his life would have done so. But what, what Jackie had now was a family. He had this goal. He had this manager. He had this team that he'd made commitments to. And he sort of saw that all eyes were on him. And, and so it was more important for him to be the bigger man than to sort of get the satisfaction that perhaps his his ego was crying out for. So, you know, I think there are people who definitely think about ego in the kind of negative way that you talked about it. But I also sure. think that there are people who think, well, ego is really important if, you know, for people who become CEOs or people who, you know, uh, become politicians or, you know, like run things. Those people often have big egos. And maybe it's not coincidental. Maybe it was key to them getting where they are. So maybe having a big ego is a good thing. Well, look, a, a lot of successful people also have drinking problems. They also uh, are bad parents. Th this doesn't mean that it's part of why they're successful. I, I, I find usually it's that people can be so talented that it can compensate for ego. I, I think what you're referring to is, is, is actually a, a pretty common misunderstanding because what we're referring to there is not ego but confidence confidence is essential you have to 
know what your strengths are. You have to believe you can do something. The problem is that just because you believe you can do something doesn't doesn't mean that you can do it. And so when we mistake ego for confidence, this is where we get problems of the Donald Trump variety, where, where someone's sense of their importance, a sense of their significance, a sense of their you know capabilities so far outstrips the reality of the situation that they're in that they find that a, a very difficult task, whether it's being president or CEO or being a professional football player, is now made exceedingly more difficult because they've alienated other people, they've promised things they can't possibly deliver. The real problem with ego as opposed to confidence is that Ego thinks that it knows everything. Ego thinks that it's perfect. Confidence knows where it has strengths, but is also aware that it can always get better and and is, in fact, sort of focused on getting better. So that that brings up a really interesting question, which is, like, how do you know where the dividing line is? And I think back... um, it seems like about a million years ago now, but there was kind of a famous speech that Mitt Romney, who's now, of course, a senator from Utah, gave um, in the lead up to the 2016 election. And it was basically like amounted to Donald Trump has a big ego. He thinks he's done a lot of business stuff really well. But actually, I'm a business person and I'm here to tell you that's not true. But you say, wait, wait, wait. Isn't he a huge business success? Doesn't he know what he's talking about? No, he isn't. And no, he doesn't. But I think to a lot of people, um, Trump's confidence or ego, and I don't know where the dividing line is, made them feel reassured that, in fact, he was the right person for the job and um, he could accomplish things that maybe other people could not. Sure. I, th- I think what ego is really great at and why it tends to be correlated with success uh, as opposed to sort of causal with success is that it's really great at marketing. It's really great at sales, right? What ego does is is sort of promise uh, the world to everyone because deep down it, it does it does believe it, right? It's delusional in that sense. The problem is the really great leaders, the really great CEOs, like when I think of Steve Jobs up pitching, you know, a new product, whether it's an iPod or the iPhone or whatever, he's he's selling the, the hell out of it, no question. What we also know is that behind this, you know, on the other side of the stage and when he's in the laboratory designing those products, he was a ruthless critic of himself and his own work. So the problem with ego is this sense of like, I'm the best there ever was. No one can touch me. I'm perfect. Of course, I alone can fix it. But then the reality of actually having to do that is a totally different thing. And again, I don't think this is a political, I think you can, you can have this discussion regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum. Donald Trump's ego made him a successful presidential candidate. His ego has made being president much harder than it needs to be and probably left a number of of relatively easy policy gains that he would think of as gains mm. on the table because he's not able to work with other people. You know, he, he over promises, he makes claims that are not necessary, so on and so forth. That's what I mean when I say ego is the enemy. It's just they're sort of gunking up the gears of the machine that we're trying to get going because it's not based on on anything healthy or real. You write uh, that ego uh, was always there. Obviously, you can point to people throughout history who had big egos and acted on them. But you write uh, that now it's been emboldened. And I wonder why you say that. Well, look, you can't pick up... 
any work from the ancient world and not see the theme of, of hubris and pride and ego. I mean, this is sort of what the Odyssey is all about. It's, it's one man's 10-year journey battle against his own ego. But, you know, Odysseus, just as you and I, when we were children, did not have to live in a world of Instagram. There are people whose ego makes them think that they are the center of attention and people are hanging on their every word and following their every movement. But that would be extraordinarily hard for a 13-year-old to sort of clamp down when they are refreshing an app on their phone that is telling them, you know, with a thumbs up or a thumbs down, whether they're they're good or bad, right? right. And and so I think what we see now culturally is that ego is embodied. And, and you know, I, again, I think Trump's a great example. I think a lot of the traits that he presented just a generation ago would have made people think he was entirely unsuited for the office. Now, because of our culture of reality television and personal brand and marketing and, and the, the, the centrality that fame and attention has in our, our world, some of these sort of self-promotional vices now appear to be virtues to some people. You know, we talked before about uh, Jackie Robinson and how times change. Um, and there are moments when certain kinds of things are valued more than others in a culture. And if you go back, Robinson, right, joined the Dodgers in 1947. That is now quite a ways back. Um, do you think that his way of being would now seem like so unusual, so aberrant, that maybe people would be confused by the subsuming of his ego? I, I would say we are we were then and we are now often surprised when people act out of principle instead of, you know, blatant self-interest. I think General Mattis, the former Secretary of Defense who just put out his memoirs, has continually surprised people because they assume, oh, you're you're not working for the administration anymore. You must be willing to tell all these secrets to, right. to talk badly. And he and he keeps replying like no, like I operate by a code that says you don't criticize sitting presidents. Robert Mueller is, an, is another example of, of someone who, who seems to be operating by a sense of commitment to a set of ideals that they're measuring themselves against constantly. And I think what's so impressive about it, again, even if you disagree with the individual decisions that they made, is that they seem to be willing to do this despite the the criticism and misunderstanding that seems to result for the majority of people watching it and uh i hope we can actively look around for examples like that and and i hope people can continue to sort of pass that torch from generation to generation but yes i, I wish there were more people operating by codes like that and 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 i wish ego was less prevalent than it is today Hmm. Okay, um, we're going to take a very quick break, and then we're going to come back for our final few minutes with Ryan Holiday, author of Ego is the Enemy. If you want to catch this whole segment, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. It's weird when one of the high points of your career comes after your business has collapsed and after you've been arrested for taking part in a cocaine smuggling scheme. But that's exactly what happened to a high-flying, ostentatious, celebrity-loving executive who changed the American car industry. 
And with me here, Mr. John DeLorean. Mr. DeLorean, they tell me that you're the best salesman in the world. If I came to you, how would you sell me one of your cars? Well, I think... John DeLorean was a luminary at General Motors for almost 20 years, from the 1950s to the 1970s. And he didn't just manage the car-making business, he shook it up, big time. I certainly think he was a genius. And, and the people at GM, where DeLorean was a star executive for the, you know, the first half of his career, thought he was a genius uh, as well. He's responsible for an, a number of innovations in, in American cars. Writer Ryan Holiday has chronicled DeLorean's brilliant rise and rather quick fall in his book, Ego is the Enemy. And then he strikes out on his own. He, he has the idea for the DeLorean Motor Company. It's going to be an independent car manufacturer. They're going to sort of own the whole process. He basically has the idea for what Tesla is today, you know, sort of sans the, the electric motor. And by all accounts, it, it could have succeeded. But DeLorean is sort of constantly undone by his ego. He loves the promotional side of things. He sort of takes for granted that, that the sort of stodgy conservative culture at GM was a culture that was fantastic at executing. And that's where DeLorean was weak. So weak that his fancy car with doors that opened up to the sky rather than opening to the side like normal car doors, well, they had all sorts of flaws and issues, which DeLorean didn't address in the way you might expect. Critics would describe his leadership style as chasing colored balloons. He would go from, you know, sort of shiny thing to shiny thing. He, he, he had a number of, you know, sort of conflicts of, of interest. He was overpromising. He sort of assumed details would take care of themselves. And they, and they just didn't. You know, I think at the height of, of arrogance is as he's starting the DeLorean Motor Company, before it's even really uh, gotten off the ground, let alone succeeded, he, he collaborates on a book called On a Clear Day You Can See General Motors. He was already predicting and celebrating his success in books before he, you know, sat down to do the work. And, says Holiday, people loved the idea of what DeLorean had to offer. Very proud of our car, which essentially, I think, is a, is a major engineering contribution to the state-of-the-art of automobiles. I think if I were trying to sell it to you, I'd sell it to you on the basis that it's a very comfortable, uh, outstanding uh, performance, outstanding handling, a car that has, because of its stainless steel skin and the fact that we use all non-corrosive materials in a chassis, a car that will last for many, many years. What did not last for many, many years was DeLorean's company. After problems with quality and production, after the company went bankrupt, and after DeLorean was caught by the feds in a cocaine deal, that, very oddly, is when one of the most memorable moments of his career occurred. Ah! Marty, you made it. Yeah. Welcome to my latest experiment. This is a big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. Ah, uh, well, it's a DeLorean, right? Stay with what me, Marty. All it? your questions will be answered. Roll yeah. tape. Okay. A movie called Back to the Future, which became 1985's most profitable film, turned John DeLorean's vision into a brilliant vehicle for time travel. The car, which had failed in real life, was forever immortalized on the silver screen. Two months after Back to the Future was released, DeLorean was indicted for fraud and tax evasion, though he was later acquitted. Ryan Holiday says DeLorean shows the danger of ego, of thinking you're so great, of not being able to face your real shortcomings. 
Holiday has become increasingly concerned that we too rarely see the peril of ego and instead choose to celebrate it. These concerns about what we value in the modern world have made him look back to ancient writings about ego and stoicism and understanding the self in a way that John DeLorean didn't seem to. And there's a reason Elon Musk today looks at DeLorean as, as sort of a cautionary tale, because it is so easy to sort of get high on your own supply, to, to think that the problems are just going to solve themselves, to think that uh, marketing is all that it's going to take. In reality, building things is extraordinarily hard. It's not always sexy. And uh, it, it's going to require you know, collaborating and working with all sorts of different people. And DeLorean was just unable to do that, and it, it proved his undoing. Um, one of the things I know you've uh, done to some degree is talk to sports teams mm -hmm. and athletes about uh, some of the things that become particularly interesting to you, this idea of ego, the idea of stoicism. I just wonder why athletes are particularly interested in hearing about this stuff? What makes them uh, a receptive audience for these ideas? Sure. I, on the face of it, it does seem a bit absurd. Why would athletes be interested in, in sort of ideas rooted in ancient philosophy? But then you think about like where where is ego the sort of most insidious, and where where are its consequences sort of the the most visible? It's it's often in sports. It's it's why you know a team makes it to the Super Bowl one year and then the next year they don't even make the playoffs. It's why Shaq and Kobe couldn't play more seasons together. It's why LeBron James and Kyrie Irving are are no longer on the same team. Imagine you're a player like Kyrie Irving and you win a championship with LeBron James and. and Cleveland, and all you're thinking about is how unfair it is that LeBron James is getting all the attention. So you you demand to be traded, and then both of you are worse off for it. So an NFL coach once told me that ego is the cancer of his profession. I think ultimately it's the cancer of all professions, but, but where the edges are so slight and the, the game is so unforgiving— which which all sports are, ego is is this thing that people have to constantly be on the lookout for. And and in fact, the reason most uh, teams don't repeat championships is because the the shared mission that they had when they were the underdog is now sort of threatened now that they're the best and they they start to take their success for granted they work less hard you know they're less willing to forgive their teammates they're suddenly thinking about am i getting paid enough am i getting enough credit uh, and these things might seem small but but they 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 tear winning teams apart and and it happens constantly you just have to turn on the television to see it Finally, I just wonder, as you kind of go, as you research in sort of sequence these topics of um, ego and stillness and stoicism, um, is there something, I mean, I wonder in part if you're like teaching yourself it as you go along, but I also wonder if you think that there's something about modern life that makes it really important that we hear those lessons, remember, I mean, obviously stoicism is nothing new, but that we remember those lessons now. I mean, it would be insanely egotistical to think that I could write a book about having conquered one's ego. To me, it was the book is 
what are the historical effects of ego? What, what does history teach us? What is ancient philosophy? What can it teach us about, about managing our ego? Because I, as, as much as anyone, need help with it. And, and I think what we are finding, and I think that's why my books have resonated, but I think it's why ancient philosophy is, is resurgent in many ways, is that the, the modern world has sort of exaggerated all the, the timeless urges and temptations and vices that have always affected human beings. And simultaneous with this sort of exaggeration is the fact that the old institutions, whether it was you know a, a notion of civic duty or a sense of honor or a, a religious faith that talks about pride being a sin, as all of these things have fallen away, we're lacking some of the defenses or some of the constraints that keep those forces in check. And so I think we're we're looking backwards for guidance because we're having to we're rediscovering constantly just how harmful ego can be, just how important it is to have a, a sort of a personal philosophy, just how rare stillness is. And, uh, you know, when someone like Blaise Pascal says in 1500 that all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone, <laughs> he was right then, but he's right even more today. And so we look backwards to, to see what these people can teach us about, about keeping that in check. Ryan Holiday is the author of the book, Ego is the Enemy and Stillness is the Key. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. more about Jackie Robinson and John DeLorean, who we talked about earlier in this conversation, we've got footage of interviews with them on our website. You can hear them reminiscing about their careers, how they felt like they changed their industries, and in the case of John DeLorean, his efforts to reconcile with what he had done. Well, I don't know that I think of myself as a victim. I think mm -hmm. it's a combination of circumstances. And, you know, as I said in my book, I freely accept the responsibility. My my uh, arrogance and my gigantic ego got me in a lot of trouble when the uh, British yeah. government... That's at our website, innovationhub.org.